Hello, my name is Christina Daugertis. I'm a professor of law at the University of Michigan Law School. When we think about international law, we usually think about rules that govern the behavior of states. These rules might be codified in treaties, or they might be unwritten rules of customary international law. In my lecture today, I'll address the international law rules that govern a different set of actors, international organizations like the United Nations or the World Health Organization or the Asian Development Bank. Where do we find the international law rules that bind these organizations? In some cases, the answer or part of the answer is straightforward. So the first place to look for such rules is in the treaties that establish these organizations. For the United Nations, that would be the United Nations Charter. A second place to look is treaties to which international organizations are parties. For example, the United Nations is a party to a headquarters agreement with the United States and is also a party to numerous status of forces agreements in connection with peacekeeping missions. All of these agreements create international obligations that bind the United Nations. Once we move beyond these sources, however, figuring out which rules of international law bind international organizations gets trickier. Let's consider some more examples. Does the United Nations have an obligation to prevent genocide? Does the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, have an obligation to make sure that the conditions on its loans don't interfere with human rights, like access to education? Do multilateral development banks have an international obligation to require environmental impact assessments for the projects that they fund? In other words, is this a discretionary policy choice or is it a legal obligation? In all of these cases, the organization's charter doesn't provide a clear answer to the question. And the organization is not a party to any relevant treaty on the topic. So, for example, the United Nations is not a party to the Genocide Convention, and the IMF is not a party to the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. So if these international organizations have these international obligations, it must be for a different reason. I want to discuss two possibilities. First, maybe these rules are part of customary international law and international organizations, like states, are bound by customary international law. Second, maybe, unlike states, international organizations can be bound by treaties through some route that does not involve their consent. It turns out that these are hard questions, and the answers remain unsettled and controversial. Scholars often cite a single cryptic sentence from a 1980 advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice. That sentence reads, in relevant part, international organizations are subjects of international law and, as such, are bound by any obligations incumbent upon them under general rules of international law. So, Okay, international organizations are bound by obligations incumbent upon them under general rules of international law. But is all of general international law incumbent upon international organizations or only some subset? And what exactly is general international law? 
Most often, this term refers to a combination of customary international law and general principles, but neither scholars nor the International Court of Justice have been entirely consistent in their use of this term. In my view, this opinion leaves us with more questions than answers. I don't think we can stop here. We need to keep digging. In what follows, I'll set out my own views about the best way to analyze and answer these questions about which rules of international law bind international organizations. So how can we get traction on this issue? Let me start with some observations. There are two distinct anxieties that motivate the arguments about international organizations' legal obligations. The first concern might be labeled the Frankenstein problem. Here, the worry stems from international organizations' independence and reflects the view that maybe they're too independent. States have created entities with significant authorities and power that they perhaps don't or can't fully control, hence the Frankenstein problem. Indeed, the novelist most quoted by scholars of international organizations is Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, and in particular the lines, you are my creator, but I am your master, obey. The second concern is the opposite. It's that international organizations aren't independent enough and that states will use them to evade their own international legal obligations. These two anxieties map on to two different conceptions of international organizations. So the first conception of international organizations is of organizations as peers of states. This conception emphasizes international organizations' formal status as separate legal persons under international law. Among other things, this separate legal personality means that international organizations can call states to account for violations of international law using the same methods that states as sovereign equals use to resolve disputes among themselves. This conception emphasizes the sources of international organizations' autonomy. For example, international organizations typically have privileges and immunities that shield them from the regulatory authority of individual states. Finally, this conception emphasizes the ways that international organizations' expertise, moral authority, and control over resources makes them quite influential. The second conception of international organizations is as vehicles through which states operate. This conception, by contrast, emphasizes the ways that notwithstanding the legal formalities, states are still in charge. After all, they're the ones who establish international organizations, they're the ones who pay the bills, and they're the ones who can dismantle international organizations if they're unhappy with them. Now, just to be clear, these are oversimplifications or perhaps endpoints on a spectrum. Some international organizations are closer to the peer end while others are closer to the vehicle end. Sometimes it, it'll depend on which part of an organization is in the spotlight. Focus on the Secretary General and the United Nations looks more like a peer. Focus on the Security Council or the General Assembly and it looks more like a vehicle. Each conception maps on to a different concern. So the peer view corresponds to the Frankenstein worry 
And the vehicle view corresponds to the worry that states will use international organizations to evade their own legal obligations. What I propose we do now is work through these two perspectives independently to see what conclusions they lead us to. These conceptions offer quite different views of international organizations and quite different accounts of how and why international law might bind them. Happily, these two routes lead to the same conclusion about international organizations' legal obligations. At the end of the day, I argue, international organizations are bound by international law in the same way that states are. International organizations are not more extensively or more readily bound, nor are they less extensively or less readily bound. In particular, international organizations, like states, are bound by Yuskogin's norms and cannot contract around them. Remember, Yuskogin's or peremptory norms are those norms accepted and recognized by the international community of states as a whole as norms from which no derogation is permitted. Second, international organizations like states are bound by customary international law, but they also share states' capacity to contract around it in at least some cases. And finally, international organizations like states are not bound by treaties without their consent. Let's work through the two conceptions of international organizations to see how we reach these conclusions. If we take the view that international organizations are the peers of states, there's an obvious model for thinking through their international obligations, new states. When they emerge, new states are automatically bound by Yuskogin's and by customary international law. But why are new states bound? It's not because they consented to be bound by these norms, the better explanation is that there are certain obligations that follow from status in the international community rather than consent. When new states emerge, they become full status members of the international community. That community is made up of states in a horizontal relationship with one another. There's no power above them. For that community to function, all states have to be bound by certain rules. International law can't function if there are what have been called white spots on the map. That is, if some states are not bound by any rules whatsoever. If there are white spots, the entire system risks unraveling. So this is why new states are bound by customary international law and by Yuskogin's. As peers of states, international organizations are also members of the international community. And because they have this status, the same baseline obligations apply. Now, one might object, why should the entire corpus of customary international law bind international organizations? After all, international organizations are different from states. They have limited purposes, and they have limited authorities to match those limited purposes. So let's consider a specific example the World Intellectual Property Organization, or WIPO. According to the treaty establishing WIPO, one of the organization's main objectives is to promote the protection of intellectual property. It does so mainly by providing technical assistance and encouraging states to enter into treaties to protect intellectual property. 
Now, one might reasonably ask, why should human rights law or the law of the sea bind WIPO? Shouldn't WIPO's obligations under customary international law parallel its limited authorities? I don't think so. And here's why. First, international organizations, authorities, and activities tend to expand over time, sometimes in surprising ways. This is partly a result of the way that international organizations' charters are interpreted. International organizations' authorities are not limited to those that are expressly specified in their charters. International organizations also have implied powers, that is, those powers that are, to use the words of the International Court of Justice, essential to the performance of their duties. Returning to our WIPO example, it's not so obvious, after all, that human rights law is irrelevant to its work. After all, the technical assistance that WIPO provides can both facilitate and undermine access to medicine. Therefore, WIPO's actions or omissions may have consequences for the extent to which individuals enjoy a right to health. My point is not that WIPO clearly has obligations in connection with the right to health, but that it's hard to assert with a great deal of confidence that any particular subset of customary international law should not bind an international organization because it's irrelevant to that organization's work. A second reason why all of customary international law should bind White Bow or other international organizations, at least as a default matter, is the possibility of ultra-various conduct. So, Imagine that overzealous WIPO officials started patrolling the territorial seas of states, including non-member states, that, in their view, were too lax in enforcing laws protecting intellectual property. This kind of activity would violate the customary international law of the sea if it were undertaken by a state official. Unless the customary international law of the sea also binds WIPO, in the same way that it binds new states. There would be no violation of international law for affected states to complain about. Now, I readily concede that this kind of hypothetical ultra-various action is far-fetched. It might not appear to pose a serious risk. But coming back to states, the probability of a violation is irrelevant to the question of whether a given customary international law norm binds states. So the law of the sea binds landlocked states, as well as those with long coastlines. Rules on the use of force bind states with small or non-existent militaries, as well as those with powerful and sophisticated ones. At the end of the day, it is this possibility of international organizations acting in ways both legal and illegal not explicitly sanctioned in their charters that explains why, as a default matter, the entirety of customary international law binds international organizations. Let me touch then on treaties just briefly. If we view international organizations as peers of states, and if we view treaties as based essentially on the equality of the contracting parties, then there's no basis for concluding that treaties can bind international organizations unless they agree. 
The rule of Pacta Tertis, that treaties do not create rights or obligations for third parties without their consent, applies to international organizations just as it applies to states. To recap then, under the international organizations as peers view, Jus Kogans binds international organizations. Customary international law binds international organizations as a default matter, but treaties do not bind international organizations without their consent. Suppose that we start instead from the premise that international organizations are best understood as vehicles through which states act. How do we get from there to conclusions about international organizations' legal obligations? An argument that is sometimes made in the scholarly literature goes like this. States have various international obligations. If they create an international organization, that organization must be bound by its member states' obligations. Otherwise, states could get out of their international obligations simply by creating an organization that is unbound by those obligations. But is that right? Let's think about how this argument plays out for different categories of international obligations. And let's think carefully about what constitutes an evasion. Is it always an evasion for a state to establish or to join an organization that is unbound by that state's international obligations? I don't think so. To define what counts as an evasion, I would argue that treaty law supplies an appropriate baseline. The basic idea is what states can do directly by treaty they should be able to do indirectly by creating an international organization. And conversely, what states can't do by treaty, they also can't do indirectly by creating an international organization. So let's start with Jus Kogan's norms. States cannot enter into treaties to violate Jus Kogan's norms. Such treaties are void. By extension, states can't create international organizations that are unbound by Jus Kogan's norms. Because if states could create such organizations, they could evade the limits imposed on them by Jus Kogan's norms. So, here the argument works. International organizations must be bound by Jus Kogan's norms. Now, consider customary international law. Does the par parallel argument work? Can we say states are bound by customary international law? Therefore, if they create an international organization, that organization must also be bound by customary international law because otherwise states could evade their customary international law obligations? No, that's not right. And here's why. Most customary international law norms are default norms which means that states are free to contract around them by entering into treaties. The Latin term for what states are creating when they do this is lex specialis. Creating lex specialis is not considered a devious and troubling way to evade customary international law obligations. Rather, it's a useful way for states to come up with regimes that better suit their specific circumstances and goals. So if a group of states can contract around customary international law directly by entering into a treaty, 
They can also do so indirectly by creating an international organization. Now, there is an important limitation to this argument that I want to flag. The conclusion here is different for member states as opposed to non-member states. So consider, as an example, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. The states that are members of NATO can decide to contract around customary international law rules vis-a-vis -vis one another. What NATO member states can't do is enter into a treaty among themselves to contract around customary international law rules that govern their interactions with non-member states. Likewise, states can't create an international organization that is unbound by customary international law with respect to non-member states. So let's turn now to treaties, and again, we'll consider the parallel argument. Does it work to say, if states all share certain treaty obligations, if they create an international organization, that organization must also be bound by those obligations? Some scholars suggest that the answer is yes. The idea is that having taken on certain treaty obligations, states lack the capacity to create an organization that is unbound by those obligations. This argument harkens back to the view of 18th century international law scholars that states lack the capacity to enter into conflicting treaty obligations. But modern treaty law, as reflected in the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, categorically rejects this view. Under the Vienna Convention, there's no prohibition on states taking on inconsistent treaty obligations though states will be responsible for any treaty obligations that they violate. Part of what animates this rule is the view that all treaty obligations have equal status, and all treaty obligations are equally valid, except for those reflecting use kogans, which do have a higher status. In the event that a state has entered into a conflicting treaty obligation, figuring out which one to comply with is not a legal question. It's a political question that treaty parties have to answer for themselves. So through these different routes, through the peer and the vehicle view, we reach the same conclusion. The conclusions that first, Juskogans binds international organizations, that customary international law binds international organizations as a default matter, and that treaties do not bind international organizations without their consent. The account I've given so far hasn't said anything about the views of international organizations themselves. Indeed, most scholars who have written about international organizations' legal obligations haven't paid much attention to international organizations' own views about this question. It's partly that international organizations haven't said a whole lot about their international obligations, but they haven't been completely silent either. Some international organizations have addressed the question of which rules of international law bind them in connection with the work of the International Law Commission. I've already mentioned the 1969 Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which addresses treaties between states. Shortly after that treaty was adopted, the International Law Commission launched a follow-up project 
on the law of treaties to which international organizations are parties. This work eventually yielded the 1986 Vienna Convention on the law of treaties between states and international organizations or between international organizations. As the International Law Commission started to develop a set of draft articles, it sought input from international organizations. One key issue that made international organizations nervous was whether and how the end result of the Commission's work was going to affect them, and specifically, whether it would bind them automatically, regardless of their consent. A number of organizations submitted comments that strongly opposed the possibility that a treaty might bind them without their consent. This was important to my project. This was evidence of international organizations taking the position that treaties cannot bind them without their consent. And a number of organizations suggested that instead of proceeding with a treaty, the process should conclude with the General Assembly endorsing the draft articles as, I quote, a standard of reference for action destined to harden into customary international law. This is a position that only makes sense if customary international law binds international organizations. Later, when the International Law Commission took on a different project on the responsibility of international organizations for violations of international law, several organizations submitted comments indicating their view that Kogan's norms do bind them. So, while the available data points may be limited, they do support the conclusions that I laid out earlier about which rules of international law bind international organizations. In addition, the views of international organizations have both theoretical and practical significance. International organizations' views have theoretical significance, especially for the international organizations as peers' view. Remember, that view suggests that international organizations are, like states, full-status members of the international community. If that's right, then international organizations' views count. The idea of an international community rests in part on its members sharing the conviction that they are part of a community that is governed by certain rules. So, had international organizations explicitly rejected the view that customary international law binds them, it would be difficult to get this argument off the ground. International organizations' views also matter from a practical perspective. Formal mechanisms for adjudicating and enforcing organizations' international obligations are few and far between. International organizations are simply more likely to comply with obligations that they themselves accept as binding. So, in the end, the vehicle view, the peer view, and international organizations' own expressed views all support the same conclusions about when international law binds international organizations. Even if you're persuaded of these conclusions, there are further important and unsettled questions about international organizations' legal obligations. For now, I want to flag two key questions 
and close with a suggestion. So first, concluding that customary international law binds international organizations is only a first step. Sometimes those norms will need to be adapted to the context of a particular organization or organizations as a group because, for example, international organizations don't exercise territorial jurisdiction or, to be more precise, they do so only very rarely. How should that kind of adaptation occur? Second, what are the implications for the role of international organizations in making customary international law? This is an important topic and one that the International Law Commission has recently had to wrestle with in the course of its work on the identification and formation of customary international law. It's a question that I've written about separately as well. So finally, the suggestion. The most straightforward way, in my view, to clarify some difficult questions about international organizations' obligations is to allow them to become parties to the multilateral treaties that bear on their work. To come back to one of the examples I mentioned earlier on, I think it could be quite a good idea for the International Monetary Fund to become a party to the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. That way, we can avoid arguments about whether economic and social rights are customary international law, and also whether and how states' obligations might need to be adapted for the IMF. Such adaptations could be made explicitly through reservations. Moreover, by becoming a party, the IMF would be subject to monitoring under the covenant. This route isn't immediately available. At a minimum, it would require an amendment to the covenant because currently it only allows states to become parties. In addition, the IMF would need to establish that it has the requisite authorities to become a party. Still, the advantages of this approach suggest that the effort necessary to surmount these obstacles would be worthwhile. As you can see, there are a number of important and unsettled questions when it comes to figuring out which rules of international law bind international organizations. If you are interested in a more detailed discussion of these issues, I would urge you to read the Law Review article on which my lecture is based. That article is titled, like this lecture, How and Why International Law Binds International Organizations. It was published in Volume 57 of the Harvard International Law Journal, and a link is available through the website of the United Nations Audiovisual Library. Thank you for your attention.